Well, please, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, open to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And if you have the Pew Bible or one you've purchased in our uh, bookshelf, uh, it's on page 1003. I'm excited to be back in Hebrews after a couple weeks of looking at some other great passages. Uh, to kind of help review and, and kind of remind you of the context, I want you to listen to a story that I made up. Okay, so it'll help us jump into the passage. Sally grew up with a strong sense of morality. Others thought of her as a good person. She thought of herself as a good person. But then she heard the gospel, the message of Christ crucified for her, and she realized that God was not impressed with her goodness, and that she had, in fact, failed to do what was the most important thing, and that was to love God and to worship him and to know him. And she saw that her confidence in her own goodness was a form of idolatry, and so she repented of her sin. At the same time, she placed her trust in Christ and his death on the cross for her, and she believed And she was so relieved that she didn't have to stress over her goodness anymore, and she felt humbled and loved. But it wasn't long before Sally's life started to get really hard. Sally was married to another moral unbeliever named Pete, and he just couldn't come to grips with the fact that his wife believed herself to be so wicked that she needed God the Son to die on the cross in order for her to be saved. And Pete really didn't like it that she believed he needed Christ just as badly. Thus, from the moment she told her husband about her faith, their relationship changed. She recently learned that her husband was planning to leave her. Sally's relationships at the workplace changed too. She wasn't invited to the parties where the networking was happening. And now the company was downsizing and she thought that they might get rid of her. And, And her parents have turned her back on her as well. And she feels really alone. At times, Sally begins to wonder if being a Christian is really worth it. She's lost so much. And if only she would change her public profession in the gospel, her, lo- her problems would all go away. She could keep her morality. After all, she wasn't that far off from the Ten Commandments to begin with. But it's Jesus who is getting her in a lot of trouble. Is he really worth it? Well, imagine that Sally invites you to talk with her. What would you say? Well, I imagine it might be a bit tough. Because on the one hand, you do want to be incredibly compassionate. Her situation is tough. Maybe you're married to a perfectly godly person, and you can't imagine what it's like for her husband to leave her because of her faith. But on the other hand, you know that if she's toying around with unbelief, that it's deadly. True believers persevere in their faith. So she can't, no matter what, give up. Now, I tell you that story because the book of Hebrews is basically written to a group of people who are kind of like uh, her in her situation. It's written to uh, a Jewish context, and they would have had a very high standard of morality. We know that because if you read the book of Hebrews, there are very few exhortations to actually live in a more godly way compared to, say, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is filled with exhortations to live in a more godly way because they were, they were pretty immoral. No, the, book, the people in the book of Hebrews were moral. Keeping the Ten Commandments was not the issue for them. The issue for them 
was their public profession of Christ. They're, they're standing upon the gospel publicly for the world to see. That's what ran them afoul with their Jewish neighbors and in turn the Roman government. So the book of Hebrews is basically what God would say and does say to somebody in a position like Sally. And, and what have we seen so far that he says? Well, if you remember from the last really few months, we started in, in the summer. can't believe it's been that long already, but we've been looking through a number of passages in Hebrews. We've taken our time, and we see that clearly that God is he's not afraid to point out to them the danger of their unbelief. He's not afraid to make them uncomfortable for the way in which they're toying around with uh, forsaking the gospel. And we saw two weeks ago, that, uh, or three weeks ago, that the word of God is powerful and it cuts deep into our hearts. And at the end of the day, nobody, no matter who you are, will get away from the judgment of God's word. We all have to answer to God. So the author of Hebrews makes it clear God makes it clear through the author of Hebrews that it's not okay to give in to unbelief. He doesn't say, oh, I understand how you would be tempted to give up your belief in Jesus. No, he says it's the stupidest thing in the world. (laughs) He says it's utterly irrational. Don't do it. And friends, this is so helpful for us because if we're honest we need that strong word from God, too. And some of us are tempted towards unbelief. You know, it's sad, though, because I think that's one of those um, you know, things that we don't really feel comfortable talking about in church. But some of us have significant doubts. Some of us are so discouraged by the circumstances around us that we really can't imagine how God is actually good. And we might say we believe in Jesus, probably because unlike for the people um, to whom this letter was written, our faith in Jesus really doesn't cost us much of anything. But for all practical purposes, we're not believing in him because there's no real trust in our hearts. There's no real confidence. We don't look out at the future with a sense of hope because we believe that he controls it and he's good. There's no boasting in him. So friends, we need... uh, God's word to come to us no matter what difficulties and significant sufferings and trials in our lives. We need God's word to come to us and say, do not flirt with unbelief. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that that is not all that God wants to say to us. In this passage today, we see God is unbelievably kind with abounding grace and mercy, and what I particularly love about this passage is we see sympathy. I like sympathy. I bet you do too. And we see that Jesus is sympathetic and that God wants to help us. So let me read this passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and then we will apply it to our lives. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to apply these truths to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you cut us deeply with your word. But Lord, we also thank you that you heal us. And we pray, Lord, that we who have been cut deeply by your word would be healed by your message of the gospel. Oh Lord, we pray that Jesus would come and be with us. Your spirit would come and minister to our hearts. Cause us to see these truths in this passage as so real that we can't miss them. Help us to easily see how they fall into place in our lives and that we need them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think this passage, it just, to me, explodes with the good news that God really wants to help us. And if you just scan the verses before this, you see, as as I just said, that God's word cuts us deeply to expose what is wrong with us. But then from these verses we learn that he doesn't just leave us bleeding there to, uh, you know, stitch ourselves up on our own. No, he's come to help us. We see in this passage that we have an amazingly sympathetic high priest. And the, the structure of this passage is that the truth of this high priest really unfolds for us in two layers. First, we're given the clear statement that we have a high priest. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, don't worry, we'll talk about what that means that we have a high priest. But then we see another layer, and we see that this high priest is sympathetic. And the point of this passage put here is for us to be encouraged, that we are not alone, and that God wants to help us. But notice, notice that God calls us, even in that encouragement, to a response. Notice that with each thing he says about the character of Christ, there's a response. So we have a great high priest, so let us hold fast to our confession. There's a response. The priest is sympathetic, so let us draw near. Friends, the high priest is ours by faith. Notice we have a high priest, a great high priest. But the exhortations mean that we will not experience the benefit of this high priest that he is to us until we respond in the way that God calls us to. So this passage gives us amazing encouragement that I pray that we will take to heart, but it also calls us to a response that we must follow. Okay, so let's look at these two layers. First, what does it mean that we have a great high priest? Now, if you are new to understanding the Bible, I recognize that this might not really excite you all that much. You had no idea that you needed a high priest. But again, you have to read this in the Jewish context, right? This, this is called the letter to the Hebrews. So, so he, he's writing to the Jewish context here. And for the Jewish people, priests were really important. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the people of God figured out really quickly that they could not approach God, the holiness of God, on their own. To do so, to just come right before God was really suicidal because all they would see is God's wrath. Without a mediator, 
they would experience God's wrath. Now, let me just take a minute to explain that reality because I know, you know, in the world we live in, that just seems so strange. But I don't think it really is. Think about it like this. Do you know that feeling that you might get when you read something in the news about senseless violence against innocent people? Children, maybe? Maybe you you read the news this week about the shooting in Florida. Or I read the news and saw violence in Turkey, and I lived there for a number of years, and that place, I I love that place, and it, it just disturbs me when innocent people there are being killed. You know that feeling that rises up in you that's like, no, this is wrong. Do you think that feeling is good? I think it is. I think it's good if that feeling of, no, no, this is wrong, and some anger associated with it, arises out of some good being violated. See, if, if we're disturbed at some good being violated, that means that we have a moral compass. That means that we actually think evil is wrong and we're against it. Martin Luther King famously said that justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. Justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. Love is meaningless unless it opposes that which is against it. And friends, God is infinitely more loving than we are and infinitely more holy than we are. And that means that his moral compass is far more accurate and more acute. And that means, and and also, God is far more powerful. And unlike us, God is the legitimate and responsible authority over the entire world. So adding them all together, you know, that God is more loving, he is more holy, he is powerful, and he is the real authority over the world, that means that he must respond. He must oppose when the greatest good has been violated. And friends, guess what the greatest good in the entire universe is? It's God's holy character. It's God's own nature, God's own glory, as the Bible says. That is the weight of his presence, the weight of his nature. And friends, it has to be that God's character is the highest good. Because if we're going to affirm God is more beautiful than anything else and more precious than anything else and more valuable than anything else, which is basically what any understanding of God would affirm, then we have to affirm that God's character is the highest good. And when God's character is violated, he must respond And that response is his wrath. And friends, that's why it's very dangerous for us to be in the presence of God. Because we've actually violated his character. We've we've gone against the greatest good. We've not loved God as we ought to have. We've not obeyed him as we ought to have. We've We've trusted in ourselves and not him. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And therefore, it is good and right, from God's perspective, for him to make us objects of his wrath. Jonathan Edwards, in a famous sermon, likened God's wrath to a great boulder um, hurtling down the hill. And he said that our efforts to stop that wrath are like a spider web, you know, going across the trees. It's, it's, It's not going to do anything. God's wrath is coming, and we can do nothing to avert it. But God can do something. And that's where the idea of a priest comes in. That's why they were important in the Old Testament. 
Priests were special people who were chosen by God to be allowed into God's special presence. And there, in the presence of God, they would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. You see, the only way in which God would not demand from the priests and from the people their lives was for some other life to be offered up in their place. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, so something had to die. And God, out of his kindness to the people, made a provision for the priest to offer an animal, a sacrifice, in their place. And friends, that is why the priests were important. They allowed the people to exist before the face of God without being destroyed. Now, that was all just sort of background here. The passage says that Jesus that we have a great high priest. What makes him great? Well, we'll notice what it says here in verse 14. Look at, look at the passage if you have it open. It says that he is Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Let's think first about that Son of God. If you remember from uh, earlier in the book of Hebrews, Son of God has been a frequent topic of discussion. The, the very outset of the book, it, it, the opening uh, call of the book is that Uh, God has spoken in his Son, who is the exact radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his character. And he upholds the world by the word of his character. In other words, the Son of God is God. Now, if you think about it, that actually does not make him a very good priest. Because the, in and of itself, Because the priests are supposed to stand in between God and the people. So the people aren't destroyed by God's wrath. If God is the priest, well, then the people still have a problem. Because if they come before the priest, who's God, they'll be destroyed. So what is this? Notice what this passage also says. That he is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the name we give to the Son of God after He has taken on human flesh and come and entered into our world. So the priest is the God-man. He is both. And that identity as the God-man makes Him an awesome priest. Because what is the job of a priest? It is to bring God and man together. Who is Jesus? He is God and man together in one person. And therefore, he, because of who he is, can mediate between God and man. He can bring God and man, God and humanity together. And how does he do that? He does not do that by offering an animal on behalf of the people. He offers himself on behalf of the people. He's the priest who sacrifices himself. And you see, because he is man, he can actually die. God cannot die. God is immortal. He became man. So that he could die. Because he's man, he can experience the punishment that we humans deserve. But because he is also God, that means that in offering himself, his offering is of infinite value. It's not just a man who dies on the cross in our place. It is the God-man who dies on the cross in our place. And this makes his death of infinite value. I love the way one doctrinal statement put it. This is the the Council of Dort from the year 1619. It says this, This death, talking about the death of Jesus, is of such great value and worth for the reason of the person who suffered it. His death is of great worth because of this person who suffered it. For he was not only a true and perfect holy human, but also 
the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Friends, because Christ is God and man, his death counts for so much. That makes him a great high priest. But not only does it say that he is a great high priest because he is God and man, it also says here in verse 14 that he has passed through the heavens. This means that after he died, he was resurrected. He came out of the ground. Not only did he come out of the ground, he came all the way up through the heavens and he sits down at God's right hand, highly exalted. This theme of God's of Christ's ascension into heaven is really all over the book of Hebrews. It's so important in the book of Hebrews. Remember, we saw earlier that when Christ sits down at the right hand of God, he's, he's given a name above every name. He's given a name above the angels. He's far superior to the angels. He should be worshipped above everything else. This is our great high priest. He's God and man, exalted to the place of highest honor. And friends, what is our response to that? Well, notice how verse 14 ends. Let us hold fast our confession. The word hold fast means to, pretty obvious, but it means to grip tightly to something. Think about a football player um, holding the ball tightly once he gets it and just not letting go of that ball as he runs to the end zone. You know, I've got this. I'm not going to let it go. Hold fast to our confession. And what is our confession? That's something worth reflecting on. He doesn't say simply, hold fast to your personal faith in Christ. We should do that, but that's not exactly what he says here. He says, hold fast to our confession. And confession brings in view our our public affirmation of the gospel. It's what we affirm about Christ to the watching world. The word in Greek for confession is a compound word that literally means The same words, to say the same thing. So confession involves you agreeing with your words with the words of another. To say the same thing as another. And by definition, you can't do it yourself. You're agreeing with the words. You're agreeing with other words. And you see, the idea of confession presumes that the church has already begun to codify statements about what they actually believed. The church, even before the the New Testament had had finished being written, the church was already coming up with statements of faith. It was important for the Christians from the very beginning to be able to summarize their faith and be able to state, this is what we believe. He's saying, hold fast to that that public declaration of your faith in Christ and who he is. Friends, this is why our church, too, has a statement of faith. I can't even conceive of what church would be like without a statement of faith, because the statement of faith is what unifies and binds our confession of faith together. You see, the church is more than a bunch of people who have private experiences with Jesus and then come together and, you know, Celebrate them. Now, I hope it is that. I hope we do know Jesus individually and personally. I'm not disparaging that idea. But I'm saying the church is also a community of confessors who's come together to to publicly affirm to one another and to the outside world, this is what we believe about Jesus. So, So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we, Greenbelt Baptist Church, number of visitors who are with us. How do we continue holding on to our faith? 
Well, friends, I, I think first we need to resist the tendency to make our faith simply a private experience. And one of the ways we do that is by recognizing the importance of baptism. Baptism is when you, you say publicly before the world and before others who can affirm your faith, I believe in Jesus. I identify with him. I, I say the same words about him that the church says about him. Think about the command for baptism. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit implies that you are then confessing the Trinity. And by implication, confessing what each member of the Trinity has done to secure your salvation. It's also a statement that Jesus is Lord. You're you're coming under his name, not Caesar's. Thus, in baptism, you confess the Trinity. You confess the gospel. Friends, if, if you're here this morning as a Christian who has not been baptized, I encourage you to... To not delay any longer. Baptism is your public confession that Jesus is your Lord and that you belong to him. It should be precious to you. I think we also need to um, reinstate the importance of church membership. See, by becoming a member of the church, you're, you're publicly aligning yourself with the words that the church confesses about Jesus. You're saying, I believe this too. The point is that we need to not view ourselves as simply having a private experience with Jesus. We do need to have that experience with Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I hope you're reading your Bibles regularly, praying to him and knowing him. But something else happens when we gather together, assemble before him, assemble in his name, and confess before the world of who he is. The author of Hebrews is trying to uh, really get this reality out to them in, a, in another passage in chapter 11 when he says that we have a great cloud of witnesses like Noah and Abraham and Moses. They were witnesses because they all confessed the same faith. And the Bible says that, that we are uh, united to them and that we have the same confession as they do. And it even says in, their, in, a, in chapter 12, which we'll get to in a little while, that apart from us, they are not perfect. We need them And in a strange way that I haven't figured out yet, they need us. We're all in this together, confessing the same faith together. The point here of all this is that because Jesus is the great Son of God, our great High Priest, exalted to the heavens, we should not give up confessing Him. He's too great to stop confessing. Let's keep on holding fast to that confession. But there's another reality, another layer to this passage that uh, the author wants us to see, that God wants us to see, which is that this high priest, who we must confess, is sympathetic. And I think the author brings that up here because he's afraid that we might draw a certain wrong conclusion about Christ being exalted in the heavens. He's afraid that we might think that because Jesus has gone all the way up, passed through the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, that we would therefore conclude, oh, that he is then too far removed from us to be able to really do us any good. Too far removed from us to really understand our lives. Sure, we should confess him because he is great and exalted, 
But he doesn't really know our experience. The author wants to prevent that conclusion. So notice what he says here in verse 15. We do not have a high priest, or priest rather, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. It's a beautiful passage there, and I, my explanation is not going to do it justice. But I think the first thing to even begin to understand this is that Jesus had weakness. He's able to sympathize with our weakness because he had that weakness too is the implication. Now, the fact that Jesus had weakness could be a shocking statement, but, but please understand, it doesn't mean that he had sin. Obviously, because it says there he is without sin. But Jesus had the weakness that goes along with having a physical body. Of course, before he became incarnate, when he's just the Son of God, he had no weakness. But he took on weakness when he took on the human form. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus has become like us in every respect. We are weak. That's reality, right? Jesus became weak as well. And friends, think about what weakness does. Weakness makes us vulnerable to suffering. And suffering introduces to our lives temptations. Temptations to forsake God's will to get out of the suffering. You see, we can do that in all sorts of ways. We're weak. We realize that suffering is something that we are susceptible to, so what do we do? We put our trust in money to fix it. We worry and fret. Uh, and we try to covet what other people have. We try to escape through the world through some illicit pleasure, through lust. We get angry and we lash out at those who threaten the illusion of our security. What else does suffering do? Suffering collapses our world into that feeling of just what I'm doing right now. All I see is what I'm suffering, what's hard and painful in my life, and and I don't love others, or at least that's what I'm tempted to do. See, our weakness creates a susceptibility to suffering, which brings temptation. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews assumes. And friends, Jesus was weak. And that means that Jesus experienced temptation like we do. Now, he didn't give into it at all. I have to be really clear about that. I'm not saying that Jesus sinned like we do. He's, we're saying clearly from this passage that Jesus was tempted like we are. Now, before we rush to apply this, I think we need to let it inform our understanding of Christ. Because there's great truth in here that that needs to rattle around in our minds. I think there's a tendency for us to think that because Jesus is God and man, that he is sort of like this superhero kind of thing. And we think that he was able to do all the great things that we see him do in the Gospels, able to resist temptation because of his sort of superhuman abilities. But this passage is saying just the opposite. If Jesus had superhuman abilities, then he would not have experienced temptation like we do, right? So therefore, he must not. True, he's God. But the point of the incarnation is that he comes down to earth to live his life as a man. That means that he used the same resources to fight temptation that are available to us. 
He used resources like the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the promises of God. Read the book of Luke especially. It talks about how God, how Christ fought temptation with those same resources that we have. He was not perfect because he had greater resources. He was perfect because he used those resources perfectly. And I think we get that wrong about Jesus. At the same time, we get something else wrong about ourselves. And the two errors play off one another. You see, at the same time we think Jesus was perfect because he had superhuman resources, we think that our humanity uh, implies the fact that, well, of course we'll sin. We say things like, well, I'm human, as if that excuses our weaknesses. But we can see here that so also was Jesus human. And Jesus experienced temptation like we do, and he did not sin. So it is wrong to blame our failures on our humanity. We just can't do that. The incarnation proves that humanity was not our problem. Sin is our problem. Think about the temptations Jesus faced. He faced, as a kid, kids, you can sympathize with this, right? Jesus faced temptations to disobey his parents. He probably faced unique temptations to speak condescendingly to his parents because he was God and they were not. Think about raising the Son of God. He felt temptations to covet what other people had, as he had very little. He felt temptations, I'm sure, to gloat over his victory when he made the Pharisees look like fools. He felt temptations to lust as women threw themselves at his feet. And biggest of all, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted to run from God's plan for his life. His weaknesses created a context for these temptations. Yet over and over again, he said no. One other thing to to think about here. The fact that Jesus never sinned does not mean that he doesn't understand temptation. Rather, it's the opposite. I want you to imagine an illustration here. Imagine a situation. Let's just say, for some strange reason, you got, this evening put in a ring with a world champion boxer. I don't follow boxing, so this analogy, if you're a boxer, is just going to completely botch it. But nevertheless, I think enough of it can come through. Imagine this evening, you get put in a ring with a world-class boxer. And I, for one, would not want to be in that situation. But let's just say it happens to you, and maybe you last five seconds in that ring, and you're just like, "Ah, forget this, I'm out of here. You forfeit the match. You give up because you can't take it anymore. He's barely touched you, but, you know, you're just want to get out of it early. If that happened, would you know the full force of the boxer's strength? No, you wouldn't, would you? Because you jumped out before it ever got too bad. But let's say you go a full round, and another round, and another round. How many rounds are there in a boxing match? I don't know. You, you, you do them all, and then you do another match. You would know the full force of that boxer far more, wouldn't you? That's what it was like for Jesus. He didn't get out of temptation by capitulating to it. He withstood under it for the one round, two rounds, all 33 years of his life. And you know, I think the amazing thing about Jesus is that he doesn't then look down at us and say, pathetic people, what's wrong with you? You have no idea what temptation is really like. No what I would be tempted to do. He looks down at us and says, yep, I understand what it's like to be in that ring. He looks down at us with sympathy 
And he says, I want to help you. I want to use my experience in that suffering to help you in your suffering. Friends, notice how we're called to respond. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You know, the first thing that jumps out to me about that passage is that the throne is called the throne of grace. Now, that's a little bit odd, right? Because usually if you think of a throne, you think of judgment. That's where the king sits, to judge, to punish, to execute his wrath. But this throne is of grace, and that's entirely due to the one who sits upon it. He is our great high priest. He is God, and he is man. So he was able to die on the cross to cover our sin. And he gives us past salvation, and he secures us an eternal future glory. But he also gives us present help because he understands our situation. So now he dispenses grace and mercy in our time of need. He understands that time of need, and he wants to give us grace and mercy. So come to him. That's the exhortation of this passage. Come confidently with boldness. And here's where the the first part of this passage and the second come together. We need our confession of Jesus as the high priest, the Son of God, to give, you know, we need that mentally to give us confidence to come before him boldly and come to him. Come to him in your reading of Scripture. As you read in Scripture of his great love for you, bask in that love. See yourselves as loved by him. And know that it's amazing to be loved by one who is so great. Come to his throne of grace in your worship. Come to our worship uh, as as you do every week. Ready to, to worship the God who is the God of all glory and grace. Come to our worship to get out of yourselves in your own little world and and give God the glory that he deserves. And as you you praise God, he is filling you with grace because you are seeing him for who he is. Come to him in prayer. God wants you to pour out your struggles before him. And when you pray, something real happens. Jesus actually hears our prayers and Jesus feels sympathy for what you experience. He actually feels it. He is still God and man in one person. He knows what it's like to be human. And he feels sympathy for you as you come to him in prayer with the struggles that you do. So come to him. Let's pray.